the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour. With Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins, as always, we are sponsored by the People's Institute for Revolutionary Semiotics. Before we get started with today's discussion, we just want to mention that we do have a Patreon account at patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. Do consider throwing us a buck a month to help support the show. But today, Taylor and I will be looking at another of Freud's juicy case histories. This one is notes upon a case of obsessional neurosis and is also colloquially referred to as the case of the rat man. And so this will actually be part one of a discussion on that case that Taylor and I conducted. And we will actually be returning next week to fill in some of these gaps. But here is that discussion between Taylor and I on the rat man. With Freud, you have the obsessive wish, which is usually sort of of a sexual nature or at least an underlying sexual ideology from childhood or whatever. You have the compulsive wish and it's competing at the same time as he, he gives the example of two different time signatures, right? It's competing. And at the same time, there's a compulsive condemnation or a compulsive opposition to that wish. A fear is really what he says. There's a there's a competition between a compulsive wish and a compulsive fear. And, you know, we see that initially it's the fear that something bad will happen to his father or to, as you said, his betrothed or this woman that he's in love with. But we see later what Freud tries to unravel very meticulously is how in the complex, in the obsessive complex for the rat man, the father is at the root of this. He's basically a stand-in for law. He right. is yeah, at yeah, the, yeah. the root of this prohibition against the rat man's compulsions, even at an early age. And Freud assumes that it's a stand-in for the father prohibiting masturbation. But we see that the account Which would be very uh, like that definitely recall Schraber, of course. Oh, yes, that's right. Exactly. That we see how the Schraber case sheds light upon. Yeah. Schraber himself is the one who was. And now uh, yeah. the rat man I mean, resists certain interpretations that Freud gives. Yeah. The masturb- masturbation thing, he's a little bit he's not as effectively charged as Schraber yes. is. Schraber just he's very angry at this accusation that right, he has right. a masturbation problem. Yeah. Now the rat man, Freud makes it very clear that, or he remarks that the rat man in adolescence did not masturbate. That's at, at least, least what, uh, that's at least what, if we, right. if we agree with the if rat man can, and Freud yeah, doesn't right. push him. And he doesn't, yes. con- he doesn't contextualize this either for us in terms of where in the analysis, where because the treatment lasted a year in which he did finally cure the yeah. sickness of compulsion. That's right. That the rat, and it all centered around the nucleus, centered around this, these verbal bridges of rat, 
and rate, which connects it with money, but also the the Spielrate, which is the gambling rata, this little gambling game in which his father lost some money in the, right, in, when he in was, the service. The father was a soldier. And right. yeah, so there's that, there's that element. There's also the element of the father, right? There's the father had a similar, like he was arranged to, he was arranged to marry a specific woman that, or like there was this conflict between the woman. He, he wanted, he wanted to marry a woman of lesser means, lower means but right. the, but the family kind of intervened and you see a, a sort of marriage arrangement between families, right? Which we'll talk about a lot in chapter three of Anti-Oedipus Alliance affiliation. But here, mm-hmm. let's just keep to Freud. I mean, like, yeah, you see that the father had had a similar conundrum where he has this choice, these right. two love objects, you know, and, and and apparently, you know, both women were satisfactory. But his initial choice is for this woman of lower means, and then the family intercedes and has him marry a, a woman of wealth. And we see that the rat man himself has, there's really at least three women in, in later life that yeah. he vacillates between right. the, the woman who pays for his postage at the, um, the, at postal, the postal office, office right. which is a whole story that I honestly think we can kind of set aside at least for now, but there's that yeah, woman who, I mean, made, who made nice remarks about him. There is some other woman that he had seen going around town who was working, who was like the innkeeper's daughter or something. And she had fancied him. And so he kind of thinks, well, once I'm done with these exercises, I'll try to, but during this whole time, he's, he's sort of in love with this woman. We never get her name, but he's, he's in love with this woman who seems to also like him right. and put up with his obsessional bullshit, <laughs> even to the point of trying to protect him while he has this fantasy of protecting her in ways that are also kind of coupled with wanting her potentially to remain ill indefinitely so that not only will uh, that fear that she will become ill get rid of, which is kind of counterintuitive, but it makes sense, right? If, if she's it's kind of, it reminds me of Poe, right? With the, the marrying the young dying girl, like the young dying girl is the most beautiful thing in Edgar Allan Poe's universe. There's something about this fantasy of her being ill. Freud makes it out so that he won't have the fear that she will fall ill. If she's ill permanently, then really though, I think Freud took down further there and said, yes, but now he, he always can be her caretaker and by her side and like her savior and she'll be she'll be beholden to him yeah right, in, all, in all things so you have these three women that are circulating but yes this that's interesting too though because the uh if you'll recall from the details of the case freud says that the rat man was referred to as the <laughs> the carrion crow amidst amongst his family for he had this sort of almost obsessional or like compulsion for grief or mm-hmm. support for those who had passed away like that right. was a tremendous concern and he would attend funerals etc so right. much so that he acquired this nickname amidst his like familiar relations of of the carrion crow yeah so also you, you, goes back in a sense that almost goes back to to poe i guess yep. raven crow those are a kind of macabre morbid cousins fascination yeah. Yeah. And um, definitely the lady, the lost, the dead lady, right? That's a very good metaphor. I mean, it's um, a like narr- it's a, narratively, right? Yeah, that's right. So the rat man, you know, his family is 
we see this towards the end of part one, his family, as you were saying, is trying to, you know, um, you ask the crucial question, like, how is it that the father and the beloved woman, how do they both become this obsessive uh, obsessiveness that his compulsions will cause them harm? Which seems interesting because he projects out who's who's going to be harmed by his compulsions rather than he himself potentially being caused harm by his compulsions. He projects it out onto right. the father whom he identifies with for many reasons, not just because he's the father, but also this woman that he's in love with. And we see that he says um, it is undoubtedly the case that something stood between father and son in the area of sexuality. This is Freud right. describing that the rat man and his father had a really good uh, relationship. They were, they were right. like buddies. They were best well, friends. Well, after there was the big, so there was the incident when he was young. When he was young. Yes. But, beat but the as, shit he out of adult, as he became um, an adult, as he became an adult, we'll get back to that. His, right. uh, but in one, in one area, in one matter, the father stood in the way or was not a friend to him. And that was, Freud, obviously, I mean, with Freud, anything you can guess, well, it was sexuality. But right. He says, so in that, in that sense, okay, so you're going to go to the part where he, um, the father admonishes him. You're going to look like a fool, basically. The part I was, yeah, coming to was, you know, Freud says, um, you brought up him not masturbating during his teenage years. Right. He may have. Which is interesting too, just a footnote. Freud says that presumably that would have acted as a bulwark against this obsession on neuroses that he does eventually fall into, right? He does eventually, after his father's death, there is, there's like two latency periods. One is the autoerotism stage when he's young. We we will talk about the little fight that he has with his father in in a minute. You know, for Freud, autoerotism implies that the, that really, the child's body is this polymorphous, perverse, intense. There, there are all these different intense zones. They're not even focused on the genitals. But masturbation, whether whether one comes or not, because that's not even you know just sexual curiosity. One's body is the first object one takes, and so he hypothesized like normal individuals, the rat man would have had you know those masturbatory experiences, blah blah blah. Even if he doesn't remember them or recall them, and right, then which his mother does, yes. Yeah, his mother, well, at least... Or he goes to his mother asking, or wait, right? Doesn't he... Yeah, he... He approaches he, the mother about the masturbation, about his, no, about his erections, about his... Uh, I right. think he says, he even refers to it as suffering from erections. Right, suffering from erections, which, again, is, is normal <laughs> bodily functions. That's, right. Once you reach a certain <laughs> stage, yes, I mean, even, even at a young age, you can... I mean, the blood is flowing. It's trying to bring nutrients to that organ, which right. is extraneous. Um, and so, yeah, his mother recalls that, but he does, but just to again, foreshadow, she does say that the incident between him and his father was not related to the prohibition of masturbation. So there's something interesting about that because for Freud, what he finds fascinating about uh, hysterics is the role that masturbation plays theoretically, at least, Right. Hypothetically, in earlier age with the rat man, it's, it's oh, yeah. with obsession, exceptional neurosis is a little bit different. For hysteria, but, I'm curious, you could probably fill in some of this context. Hysteria was typically was considered a female or woman's malady, right? The hysteria, hysterectomy, histo, like, you right. know, I mean, that's you, kind of what I was thinking. And the, the ancients thought that 
thought that hysteria, madness, general was there. There was a feminization even from ancient times, and it's related to the word for womb. Hymen, and they thought hymen, they thought yeah. they thought mm-hmm. that they they thought that the hysteros, the womb, the the uterus would was mobile and would float around the body and would kind of cause these disruptions of humors and other things and, and disturb the, the mind-body relationship. Yes, I, to a certain extent, even Freud studying under Charcot and most typically, yes, hysteria is kind of this feminized thing, but he does mention that some of his patients, very few, but some of them are males as well. So it's not purely a biological feminine thing, even if it takes on a kind of feminization. And, you know, there's this whole kind of history, not to pun, of, of, of hysteria <laughs> nice. and, and these other things. Of- well, the, and the, I think most interestingly here is, you know, we're talking about masturbation, right? The cure for hysteria around this time that Freud's working, right, is that's when the vibrator I guess before the vibrator is invented as a treatment for hysteria, the doctors would manually right? That was the treatment for hysteria was for the doctors to like manually stimulate the clitoris and labia, etc. There, there are, you know, it's, it's a question of if that's really related to hysteria or some of the more like, for example, Freud will distinguish between neurasthenia as this type of malaise that's caused due to coitus interruptus, due to not coming versus other related um, disorders that are a product of coming too much, of masturbating too much. So it's this, it's always, so, so on, on one hand, some of these disorders are, let's just say they are organized in a, in a very brute way based upon an economy of coming and not coming. A libidinal economy, perhaps. Yes, yeah, so yeah, very, very, a very <laughs> simple, crude type of libidinal economy. Yeah. Freud never kind of advocated input output, I guess, for or against, but he did kind of see that sometimes some of some symptoms, some symptom formations could be related to this question of, of finishing the act or performing the act too much. He prefaces the Ratman case with this notion that you would think hysteria would be more difficult to unpack than the obsessive compulsive neuroses. And his point being is that with hysteria, one of the typical symptom formations is what he calls conversion, which for him is when a psychical energy transforms and literally creates signs, formations on the body. So you have to really a psychical energy is converted into a somatic text in a certain way to be read. Yeah, I think it's interesting too. Freud points out these physical or like these uh, these defense mechanisms. It's tied to an act, right? All mm-hmm. the mental shit is tied to an act of some kind. You make a good point. I think that's why for Freud, obsessional neurosis counterintuitively is much more difficult to unravel than hysteria. Even though we would think the opposite, what we see with the Rat Man as an exemplary case is that all of this stuff is much more this interplay of different memories arising and fading these different amnesias not only in childhood which is normal right between the puberty and after the uh the initial autoerotic and narcissistic phase but this later amnesia that we see after his father dies in his early 20s i assume 
there's like 18 month period where he's not, where he's fine or at least relatively fine. And it's 18 months later that there's this onset and some of these memories start to, we could say the defense mechanisms of the obsessive compulsion that he has, these, this war, this battle between the wishes and the fears start right. to get at loggerheads and deadlock into some of these, these obsessional symptoms that we'll talk about. And I think for Freud, that's what makes it more difficult, especially with these different lapses of memory, these different, and also these kind of disavowals that, that the Ratman keeps making. We see that Freud attributes this, attributes this partly to his intelligence and his perception. The other thing I think that we can't forget is that Freud details how the Ratman came to, quote unquote, choose Freud as his doctor. First of all, he was looking because of this incident that we just referenced a little while ago about this confusion about paying someone back for the package. Right. Um, which was his eyeglasses, right? For his eyeglasses, his, pen, his believe, pen says right. or whatever. Right. Yeah. This confusion about who to pay back and his procrastinations and his hesitations and all of this. He wanted to get a doctor's note as an excuse to go in this roundabout way of taking care of this compulsion. You know, I'm not going into what happens yet. Uh, I think we'll save that for later. But he wants this doctor's note. He wants the doctor to say, hey, Ratman, you know, Mr. Ratman, I think his name is Paul. I think we, we get his first name once. Paul is, he's a very special boy. And, um, and he's got some... Uh, He's got some issues. Would you go with him to the post office and help him perform literally this comedy of errors is what Freud calls it. It's, he, he literally calls it this comedy, this comedrama, you know, this dramedy, if you will. And so what does he do? We, we get the other information that Ratman has some books. One of, one of the books of which he has is Freud's. It's the yes. psychopathology of everyday life. He's got a copy of the Psychopathology of Everyday Life. And the fact that he's, he says that he kind of at random chose Freud's book means that he probably also has some other psychoanalytic or psychological literature. So he's well-read. Mm-hmm. Now, he claims to have not really read Freud, maybe skimmed him. I don't believe this for one fucking second. I think this guy read Freud, probably read the Psychopathology of Everyday Life, and probably read the sections on jokes, on slips, in writing and and in speaking and all of this uh, at least got through some of those first sections and was like, fuck, that's me. You know, I got to talk to this guy. Barring telling the story or unpacking the story about the little drum, this little comedy drama of, of paying for the package. I think that that almost is an excuse, a beautiful excuse to rationalize his need to see Freud. Because it's less, I need, I need the doctor's note so I can do this comedy. I think Freud's part of the comedy. I think I need this, this fantastical situation about paying back to have an excuse to go and see a doctor for these compulsions that are beyond my control. This is a very, this is a very um, unique case then for Freud, I believe, to have this patient who is not only well-read, but kind of knows some of Freud's tricks. He knows kind of some of what Freud will say. And we see that in the middle of this first section on the case history, Freud does something that's very unusual. 
where he goes into a kind of third person dialogue narration with the rat man said this and I responded back. Right. And, you know, and Freud has these footnotes in this little dialogue, this back and forth between them as he's recounting the sessions where he's like, I'm putting forward this kind of crude, simple. One of the first things he said is about how the, his feelings for the father is bound up with this, this love and hate, which is mm-hmm. a rough approximation of what Freud really thinks. But it's kind of, he basically says he's kind of trolling, testing the rat man. Because I think Freud's cl- more clever than he lets on. That Freud, mm-hmm. Freud gets it that this that the rat man is testing him and is and is trying to, you know, he's trying to resist Freud, not just in the in the analytic situation, but in some of the stuff that he's read. So Freud is throwing out little traps, if you will, <laughs> rat little, traps. Yeah, little rat traps. I really do think so. And we also have to take another step back and question Freud's own way of writing this part of the case, the dialogue, the back and forth that he describes, because we know that during the session, Freud doesn't take notes. He, he says it here and he says it elsewhere in, in some of his transference papers that if you're, as you are in the analytic situation and the, one of the rules, one of the fundamental rules is say anything, right? It's free right, association. Right. The other fundamental rule that Freud imposes on analysts, or at least he advocates and he he performed himself, is not to be writing while the analyzan, the patient, is speaking. Because for him, you not only distract them, but right. you, you distract yourself. Yeah. Yes. And so this is one of the, the rules for the fundamental rules for the analyst. If the analyzan, the patient's fundamental rule is free association, say everything without thinking without censoring. And don't hold back. Yeah, yeah. Don't yeah. hold back. That's, That's the right. biggest part. For Freud, the and the analyst's fundamental rule is suspended attention. And this is a very important concept. And by suspended attention, it's don't focus in any one moment on something that's being said and try to just pick at that one thing because you're going to miss the bigger picture. If you focus on one tree, you're going to miss the forest. So it's this, it's this evenly suspended attention, listening to to the the patient talk, and if you're taking notes while you're doing that, you you've already ruined it. And the second right. thing is, if you're taking notes, you're also distracting them, right? Because they say something that they don't think is significant, and you start jotting stuff down, you automatically kind of like the quantum mechanics looking at a at a quark or at a subatomic particle. You've already you've already lost the motion or, you know, you, if you just look at the position, you lose the trajectory, you know, or the speed, you can't calculate both at the same time. Right. Um, I'm kind of mixing my metaphors here, but you get what I'm saying. So you don't want to influence the patient by, by writing during the session. And it would be the same thing with, you also don't want to react in your facial things. So when you, when you, when you, when you mentioned that Freud has this resting bitch face, Part of that is to, to be a kind of a blank slate and to not give the patient a mirror that would allow them to bounce their hypotheses and their, their bullshit off of. Because if you react if you it, it, with your faces, if you give it away, you have to have a poker face, right? If you raise your eyebrows or whatever the fuck, that whole play of faciality, mm-hmm. you subliminally you know, I'm going to put this this way, this how Freud talks, but you, you subliminally affect them and you almost lead them 
unconsciously. I, I suggest, yeah, that's right. Yes. In a, in a bad way because yeah. Because what do they say? Uh, 70% of communication is nonverbal or some shit. Yeah. I mean, I don't know the percentage, but that, that, that Something makes perfect like that. sense. Yeah. Like it may be 60, but a significant portion is supposed yeah, to. Yeah. Let's, let's just say a, a, a non-negligible amount. Right. Right. And so, and I think this is essential to the way Freud thinks about the transference. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, and good. I'm glad and you that, went there. Yeah. 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 Because he, he That's exactly where I was going gonna... up the transference a few times, for example, you know, the part that I was going to quote, just a second ago, and I don't have to quote the whole thing, but you mentioned, we talked about father identifications, and this is a good place to bring in transference because what else is Freud doing than providing for a kind of blank father figure to the rat man or the patient to have a transference, generally taking Freud as, as the position of the father, and then to gently but firmly if you can take those two together gently and firmly not allow that right freud is not going to be your daddy he's not going to stand in for your daddy in any real sense and give you that validation even if even if he can play that foil because that's the thing is to play the foil but then to, to unravel it and to reveal it back we mentioned that the father that ratman's father has this he falls in love or 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 is thinking about marrying this woman of lower means of lesser means and the family intervenes and arranges a, a marriage for him that would be more conducive. And um, it doesn't seem like that we don't have information, but it doesn't seem like that was something that was miserable to the father. It's not like the father had a Romeo and Juliet moment yeah. and, you know, wanted to die on, on that Hill. Yeah. But um, we, we do see that, I mentioned that he did. We were told he didn't have sexual intercourse until he was twenty six. Twenty six, right? And Freud brings up that the one area that the father and he were not friends and buddies about was the fulfillment of the sexual relationship. And he says um, it is undoubtedly the case that something stood between father and son in the area of sexuality and then and that in some way the father had come to oppose his son's prematurely awakened erotic sensibilities. Several years after his father's death, on first experiencing the pleasurable sensations of coitus, the idea forced its way into the son's mind, quote, this is marvelous. It would be worth killing one's father, father for. <laughs> Here we find both an echo and a clarification of the convulsive ideas of his childhood. Shortly before the father's death, incidentally, the father had expressed a view that was directly opposed to the direction taken by our patient's affections, a direction that was later to dominate his thinking. He observed that his son sought out the company of the lady in question and advised him against it, right. saying that it was imprudent and yes. that he would only compromise himself. And so the, the lady in question is the woman that he's kind of putting off marrying for 10 years. So we do see that the father reproduces exactly what happened to him. There's something very similar going on in, we hear about this in children too, and beyond the pleasure principle where the child, children will play doctor together and they might have seen a pediatrician and had, you know, a kind of a, let's not say violent, but a unpleasurable experience done to them, either operation or some kind of thing. And they will want to, having undergone that passively, they'll want to master that stimuli and then, you know, actively enact that on another child and kind of, you know, 
this is how we can understand also generational child abuse and even sexual abuse and these other things. We do know that, you know, those who experience child abuse and, and sexual molestation in early years are predisposed, let's just say, to right. reproduce that. They're more yeah. predisposed than the normal. This is a kind of a, a similar thing, but it's, it relates to marriage. And we do see, so it's interesting that there is this, again, there's this prohibition. The father is prohibiting, or at least strongly suggesting and trying to curtail his son's, um, you know, libidinal attachment. And I think that's why we get back to the very first thing that Freud says is that when the rat man starts having these obsessional impulses, these competing, the wish and the fear or the wish and the fantasy of punishment, the two figures that he imagines being punished if he continues having these obsessional thoughts is the woman that his father says not to marry and his father, who incidentally had been dead several years before. Now, Freud doesn't say it here, but he explains it clearly in the interpretation of dreams and other essays that the unconscious doesn't really understand, doesn't process negation. Hmm. Contradictions can coexist in, in the unconscious without any conflict. They can exist side by side. Same thing, the unconscious doesn't understand time. The unconscious doesn't understand death, therefore, right? <laughs> like um, Schreiber's God, almost. Yes. It's interesting, though, that it's the opposite, right? Because Schreiber's God only understands the dead in a kind of weird involution. But mm-hmm. yes, I mean, it is very similar to that. Yeah. Schreiber's God only understands corpses unless, you know, they're very... Special, Special, important people like Traber. So I guess the third thing, and this is something, again, that Freud, he doesn't detail in the first part, but we we learn about, um, we learn about Paul, we learn about, or maybe Paul's his brother's name. I'll have to double check, doesn't matter. I'll just keep calling him the rat man. We learn about the rat man and his brother. And one of the fantasies he has, well, first off in childhood, you know, he has, he overhears his governess and some other girls, because what he's probably five, six at this point, saying, saying something that like, oh, we could do that with his younger brother, but we wouldn't want to do that with, I think his name is Paul. We wouldn't want to do that with, uh, with Paul because he's clumsy and he starts to cry. He doesn't understand First of all, he intuits that they're describing something sexual, but he starts to cry because he realizes that they're saying something negative about him. And, you know, honestly, that kind of stands in for a first traumatic notion that women will find him wanting. Women will find him clumsy, impotent, um, not suitable for sexual play. And we'll get back to this stuff in his childhood with the sexual play, with the... uh, with governess uh, with the governesses, right? yeah, and his scope, his scopophilia, his voyeurism. He talks about laying with her and touching her. So the first governess, yes, the first governess. He one of the first little things we were that Freud gives us is for me that was jumping out. You know, you were referring to this early sexual thing, like or Freud's kind of whole paradigm for this being that these early sexual things do reemerge later on. Yep. Yep. 
even more so than the current contemporary sexual life of the patient or whomever, right? Yes, that there is. I mean, he is five, six, seven years old whenever this is happening. Well, I think even at the, I think the earliest thing that we hear about is in terms of his relationship to women is I think he, it says he's three. I'll double check. I think he's three years old and his first governess is reading on a couch, right. I believe. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Yeah. Cause this is, this is like the primal scene for Freud, which is like very always mm-hmm. important for Freud trying to get to the primal scene. And we'll talk about the primal scene with the wolf man and how important that is. So one of the first primal scenes we have is he says, when I was three or four years old, he says he can remember everything from five afterwards. And in fact, if this memory, this primal scene only comes into his memory later, much later. But the first primal scene is his, there's the young governess, Fraulein Peter, which Freud has a footnote saying it's weird that he calls her by her last name, by her um, Christian name or her surname and not by her Christian name. Cause the, the next governess that will be an object of his desire, he calls Fraulein Lena, which is her first name here. He calls his first governess Fraulein Peter, which he says, this is not a, this is not what Viennese people would do. They would always call them by, call governesses by their first name. It has class, you know, um, implications and right. hierarchy and stuff like this. But anyway, Fraulein Peter, she's scantily dressed, reading on a couch. He's three or four. He's lying next to her. And he asked to crawl under her, her dress, her petticoat. And she, she says, okay, but you can't tell anyone. Now this is interesting. That command is the first, is really a compliment to the father as the institution for law. Really she's saying, don't tell dad, right? right. So, so the law was already welded to jouissance here. So he crawls under her dress told not to tell anyone. And he says that he remembers touching her genitals in her belly. Right. And, and he says, I found that rather odd that he did that, which of course is him narrating it in the present. So he he is in Freud or the, or rat man, just to clarify. No, the rat man found it, found it rather odd that she allowed him. Well, yes, because Freud is narrating him. So gotcha. he says, I was lying next to her. I got permission to crawl under the dress. You know, I'm told not to tell anyone. I, she wasn't wearing much. I touched her genitals and her belly. And he says, which I found rather odd. Now the I here is rat man. So yes, it's interesting that in the present, he's like, that's weird that I would do that as a kid, that I'd be touching her, her genitals. Now, for whatever reason, this governess is replaced by another one. Who knows if the parents found out? Who knows yeah, if we don't if, get filled in on those details at all, right? Maybe the rat man mentioned something. Mm-hmm. You know, as a child, uh, even though he was told not to tell, he he do, he's done a lot of things as we find out from the case in his childhood that he doesn't remember. So who knows? But she's replaced, and there is the next governess, Governess Lena. He calls by her first name. Um, which is more appropriate. And he says that after this first governess, after this first primal scene, he gets this intense curiosity that he wants to see the naked female body. And it's interesting if we think of stereotypes of 
how sexual development works, you know, when you're at, because this is at the age of five. Yeah. At the age of five, he gets a new governess and he's like, I have this, I remember having this intense, this intense longing to see the naked female body. Now we could say that part of that is curiosity because there's, there's always going to be this working out of the sexual theories of children, but the way that it's described, it seems like it's much, it's become a, a cathected hyper sexualized thing, which is precocious and more advanced, right? Because when you're that young, you're not necessarily like, I want to see titties. Maybe later right. when you hit puberty and shit. Yeah, not in the same, at least not in the same fashion. When I was, I don't know, seven, eight, nine, ten, maybe. Yeah. Looking at Playboy, like, you know. Okay, yeah. Before the internet, obviously, like, you know, Playboys and what have you were the first glimpses at the female form. Right. Or the woman's body. And part of that is knowing that. that well, aside from maybe like mom, right? Right. You might see mom. I'm, but or your sister or her friends, you know, whatever that it. But it's interesting, right, that part of that, too, reading the Playboy at, at that age is. Yeah, because I'm just thinking like my investment, like my libidinal intensity, at least it's a different it's a whole different thing. Right. Yeah. I just remember being like kind of thinking vaginas were weird. Oh, sure. Yeah, of course. It was almost off putting to view the pornography. Oh, like, yeah. And, a, a and Playboy. One, yeah, and one of the essays we'll read uh, and talk about soon is the fetishism essay, and we'll talk we'll talk about fetishism. But here, it's interesting, right? That oh, I was just going to com- comment on part of the interesting thing too is having that literature at such an early age. You also know that it's potentially transgressive and not, you know, it's a rebellious. It's not necessarily meant for you, right? You're so you're 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 going against the law, against the rule. So yeah, at age five, he has this, he, he remembers this intense desire to see women naked. And so he says he would, he would kind of skulk around and sneak around and wait for the, his governess to enter the baths and watch her undress. So you have this voyeurism. And he says, we had another governess then, also young and pretty, who had abscesses on her bottom, which she used to squeeze every evening. I like that that little detail is, is included, right? That she's, she's like popping these these pimples on her butt and he i assume got some got some sexual pleasure out of that you know at least voyeuristic pleasure and we could kind of it's interesting too at age of five this is you know you're still in the kind of the anal stage or at least on the cusp of the anal stage which doesn't have to do with looking at butts <laughs> right but we'll get back to the the whole anal stuff later when we really get into the rat man stuff the next thing he recalls is at age seven, which is what I mentioned that Fraulein Lena says to, let's see, there's the governess, the cook, another girl, and then his brother who was 18 months younger and him, himself. And he says, I suddenly caught a snatch of the girl's conversation and heard Fraulein Lena say- you, Wait, a snatch? Oh yeah, there you go. Your well, own Freudian slip there, right? This, well, this, is my, this is my translation. This is uh, this is the penguin. You're looking at Strakey, probably. Oh no, no, I was just, I thought no, I literally thought you had just done a Freudian slip and said. Snatch. Well, that'd be great. That be I think the translator probably has a little, or the I'd have to look at the German to see if it if it has. I don't some, recall snatch being in my. Not, no, not Strakey so. probably wouldn't use that that, right. that term. Yeah, makes sense. Um, but but maybe it's, it's implied by the translator, or maybe the translator has, who is a female, if I recall, Luis. Interesting. Yeah. So, yes, maybe, maybe it's the translator's um, Freudian strip. So. I mean, like you said, when it comes to translation, something like 
snatch is more evocative, right? It's more yes. poetic than I don't know another term. Then a Latinate term, right, yeah, then yeah. a the vulva, the, et cetera, like right. clini clinically oriented language. I would find it hard to believe that the female translator wouldn't be aware that snatch has right. sexual connotations right. when she could say glimpse. Again, I'd have to pull up the German and and do some etymology stuff and see if if Freud's <laughs> Freud himself has uh, uses a sexual word. I assume he used a very basic word for like glimpse or view. But yeah, so I caught a snatch of the girl's conversation and heard Fraulein Lena say, "Quote: You could do that with the little one, his younger brother, but Paul, that is me," he says, "is too clumsy. He would be bound to get it wrong." Now. He infers that this has sexual implications, or at least he infers it later because it goes on. I did not understand very clearly what was meant, but did understand that the remark was a disparaging one and began to cry. Lena comforted me and told me that a girl who had done something similar with a little lad in her care had been locked up for several months. So we know something inappropriate is involved. Yeah, we yeah. know it's interesting too. Um, and he says, I do not think she got to any mischief with me, but I was allowed to take all sorts of liberties with her. So there's something interesting going on where he hears them saying, whether they're joking or not, or whether they are being just sexually inappropriate, they're like, oh, well, you could you could play with, with Paul's little brother, but you couldn't do that with the other one. Even if it's a joke, it's a little bit disturbing, but it's interesting that whether or not he remembers this correctly, whether or not this is fantasy, you have, first of all, he is rejected as being a passive recipient of sexual advances, right? Which is why I mentioned impotence or castration or whatever, or he's, his feeling of inferiority. But he goes on to recount active sexual advances that follow from this. So he says, I do not think she got up to any mischief with me, but I was allowed to take all sorts of liberties with her. When I came into her bedroom, I would pull the covers off her and touch her and she would never try to stop me. She was not very intelligent and obviously very needy sexually. At 23, she had already had one child whose father she later married, so that nowadays she has a title. I still meet her quite often on the street. <laughs> That's like <laughs> yeah. fucking wild. I love just the little details there. Yes. And you see again that he not only has this voyeurism, this scopophilia, this, but because of the first governess and touching her genitals and, and, and the belly, that continues with the next governess at, at age seven, where he's, who knows, right? I mean, who, I don't know if he's fingering her or if he's just playing with her vagina or maybe even only playing with her breasts, whatever. We don't get that information, but we assume it is, he's going at least to second base, right? Skipping first because they're not kissing, <laughs> at least as far as we know. And I love the little tidbit that, She's needy sexually. She's promiscuous. She has a baby at age 23 in modern terms. That's really that old, but it would have been out of wedlock as he's kind of saying, because then she goes on to marry this, this, the man, the, the father, and she gets a title. I thought that was interesting because technically she already has a title as governess, but he means like she married up. Mm -hmm. Right. Which brings us back to this question about marrying below, beneath one station and marrying up, right? With like with the father and with what the father is kind of telling him not to do with this woman that he's he keeps procrastinating 
marrying, keeps coming up with reasons to not do so by not finishing his, his education. And all that is a lot of the backstory, I think, in terms of the, the infantile stuff or, or just the childhood sexuality that's really important and it only scratches the surface, but it gets us to the third series in which there is, I don't know a good word for it. It's not coitus interruptus, but there is this interruption of nuptial of marriage intentions, right? With not only with the father and not only with the rat man himself, but also with his younger brother, whom he later says he always was jealous of because his younger brother was stronger, was more attractive, better with the ladies, sort of more successful in general. Mm-hmm. And he has this fantasy, we assume after the father has died and he started to have these intense obsessional compulsions. He has this compulsion, I don't know if I'll be able to pull it up or if it really matters, I'll just say it, where he um, he has this fantasy, this even like this demand in his head to go kill his brother's betrothed. He thinks that this wish, this compulsive wish is bound up, not just with the jealousy, obviously, but with some of the same shit where he thinks that his brother is going to fuck up his life by marrying this girl that's beneath his station. So <laughs> Freud doesn't make this as explicit, but if we, yeah. if we want to think about anti-Oedipus, as we will, and alliance filiation, the way that families are negotiating, you know, arranging marriages and these other things. There's a kind of Marxian, say Marxian instead of Marxist. There's a kind of class consciousness, class unconscious, if you will, that's pervading this whole thing that's really just kind of in the background for Freud and kind of assumed and not made as explicit. But, you know, from our modern vantage point and, you know, we, we can kind of bring that out a little bit. All right. I've talked a little bit. I want, I would like to hear some of your thoughts and, and, and we look at some of your notes. We've really just kind of set the stage for, for bringing in some more elements of the case. You know, I mentioned one kind of looming thing in the background here is looms quite large is, is Oedipus, which I think you said Freud hadn't really really come up with at this point in his career, but I think you can absolutely see a type of Oedipal triangle in the relationship between the rat man, his father, and his uh, betrothed or his, you know, the object yep. of his love or whatever, sexual objects, and the father being an obstacle to that right. potential potentiality. Also this, I guess, reminding me too of Schraber, this element of perhaps repressed sexual desire for the father, which I think may be going towards some of what Freud theorizes in terms of bisexuality. This conflict between love and hate, this binary opposition for both his love and his father. So there's an erotic side, but there's also this hate that really, I guess, ultimately manifests itself in these fantasies of this, this torture that he hears while he's presumably a soldier of some type and yes, while he's in the service, he's off on maneuvers and there's a, a captain that, that tells this story about using this pot as a, and then filling with rats and then 
putting it on the, I guess, the prisoner or whomever, whomever the, the subject of the torture is, place this pot on the, on the ass, and then the rats would bore into the ass of the, yeah. of the party who's getting, right. <laughs> getting tortured, right? Let's start with the Oedipus stuff, and then let's move into where, let's move into the rats, because uh, that, you know, there's, there, it's, it's good ground to cover. You're right yeah, there. Yeah. You know, there is this notion of, now Freud doesn't necessarily paint it out. He doesn't make explicit that the father as beloved, as loved by the son, the rat man is an object of desire. But we know that he's, he's cathected. We know that he's strongly invested in. And so you can see that there is, there is a series going from the lady he loves, whom the father doesn't want him to marry, and the father. And you can obviously see that, that because there is this oscillation of libidinal energy between the two, and so, you know, the father not being a suitable object for sexual desires is, you know, sort of you, you have to find an object for a substitute right, right, um, right. for that. So the question of whether the rat man wants to fuck his father is we'll, we'll sort of leave open. But we, we know that he loves him. He loves him more than anything else in the world. On the one hand, he, he would give up his beloved for him. On the other hand, after his death and finally consummating the act and having sex, he's like, man, it's fucking great. I would, I would kill my dad for this, right? So <laughs> you can see that the love-hate thing is, is so strong in him. Yes. And that's, that's a part of the complex of the, the conflicting wish and condemnation. And also um, like a literal Oedipal wish, right? Or wish. Yes. Well, well yeah, yeah. It I is, mean, when it is, the subsequent... When yes. he talks about how he would kill his father for the, that's definitely. Yeah. It's like, oh man, I wish dad were still alive so I could go fucking kill him. You know, that's kind of the thought in a certain way, you know, yeah. I wish, and it reminds me of a good Freudian reading of Hamlet, at least in a very crude and base, but still very crude and base, but a good Freudian reading of Hamlet is not necessarily, well, it would get to the point where, Hamlet wants to kill his uncle who was married to uh, his yes, mother. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Not, not because Claudius killed his father, but because Hamlet didn't commit the act of patricide himself. Hamlet is actually jealous more that Claudius got to do the deed and gets credit for it and, and oh, therefore ascends the throne. It's really Hamlet who's like struggling with the fact that, oh, fuck, I wanted to kill dad the whole time, you know. But he does share... Hamlet does share that great, of, or at least on the surface level, a great affection for the father. Oh, yeah. Me, me thinks that I see my father. Yes. I mean, that's his whole motivation for the... Well, yeah, and, and, and the, very first scenes, the very first scenes is the, the dead king, the dead right. father's ghost appearing. Skulking about, yeah. And we see, again, another way to understand the Ratman's fantasies is one of the th- scenes that we hear about after his father has died and his obsessive compulsions have come about, he's apparently studying till midnight, supposedly trying to finish his examination so he can marry this woman, which he keeps putting off. He's supposedly studying at midnight and from midnight to one, he opens the window, lets in the air, unzips his pants and starts admiring his penis, 
in the mirror and, you know, I would assume stroking it and whatever. And he has this thought that that's related to the, to the father, or at least Freud connects up and relates to the father that he imagines his father would come visit him and see him studying, which is something that his father was before his death was trying to prompt him to do. Hey, finish your fucking studies and go marry this girl, or at least go marry, be, be in a position to marry up, not this girl, right? There's this intensely invested and connected act where he's, he's studying. He's like, I'm a good boy. Dad would love me. And that leads to, to the sort of his, his self-admiration of his genitals and his, and all this, um, which would be something that his father wouldn't necessarily want to see as a ghost, right? So there is this, again, there's this intense conflict, this oscillation uh, yes. between but his, and that's funny too, his that, father and then doing something his father would, would want to prohibit. But then um, just also, just to break in real quick, the ghost, he does have this desire to see his father as a ghost or like imagines his yes. father appearing as a, as a apparition or what have you. Yes, he does. Which kind of goes does. to that Hamlet connection oh, as no. well too yep exactly and he and he does say that very early on in the case to freud that like he'll kind of like imagine his his father yeah just being being around being present i mean and again that's like a direct expression of the unconscious right or a dream it's like a it's like an acknowledgement of a dream formation to be visited in dreams is still the unconscious yeah not, the wish not knowing yeah it's 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 that wish the one thing that i would say about the the last thing I would say about the, the Oedipus stuff is, you know, we don't have clear indication for the kind of mommy issues. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, very um, sparingly. You know, mom. Other than he does go to her with his erection. Yes. Issue or concern. Right. His, his concerns over suffering what, from erections. I think that one would imagine as a child going to the father. To the father. Yes. Yes. Exactly. For that because he not only has the machinery to kind of so, say what's up. Yeah. Yeah. And console. Them. I mean, maybe that's the Oedipal little. That's maybe the little Oedipal nugget. Oh yeah, that's yeah. a little Oedipal nugget. You're totally right to be doing that. And Freud, when he, when we hear the story that his father would, one of the first examples that he can remember of, or he's not, he he doesn't remember. He actually disavows it. He remembers his mother telling him about this incident where his father is is beating him and is very angry at him and so angry that the rat man kind of loses control and starts, starts verbally abusing his father, but he hasn't learned the way in which to talk shit. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so he calls him a lamp. He says, yes. you lamp, you, you, you candlestick, you book, whatever you table. You can just yeah. imagine the, yeah, the kind of, I love lamp. I hate lamp. You know, it's yeah. that kind of weird. And the father Which has is, this. It's too cool too, because that gets into the kind of signifying, I don't know, that gets in the whole linguistic turn of Lacan that, as well. Yeah. And, and his, his own linguistic symptoms and symptoms and his father stops. He's, he's, he's amazed by his, not just his son's resistance, but the rage and the, it's really the impotence of the rage, but it's, it's purity. It's intensive purity stops the father. And the father apparently remarks, God, my son's going to be either a, a great man or a criminal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which, if you take a Nietzschean turn of things, criminal is. A great man. Potentially a great man. And we do have, 
I don't know if it's the Rat Man or if it's Freud quoting Nietzsche. I think it's the Rat Man in the dialogue Rat Man. with Freud. The Rat Man. That, that quotes yeah, yeah, Nietzsche. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. I'm almost 100% that's Where I could not have done that. My memory insists. Or, or sorry, I did that. My memory insists. I could not have done that. My pride stands firm and eventually memory yields to pride. There's something, this is, this is, Nietzsche's very good. He has this whole rumination on the criminal performing this, like Socrates in a certain way, performing these, these deeds, these transgressive deeds. And then he, he shits all over the deed by having this guilty conscience. Anyway, I'll leave for, uh, Nietzsche aside for now. So the rat man fights back and goes into a rage and starts yelling at his father. And uh, his father stops beating him, says, wow, my son's going to be great one day or, or fail miserably, right? Socially be a criminal. And Freud says in a footnote, well, his dad didn't consider a third possibility, which is that his son would become a, a neurotic, <laughs> right? <laughs> like that's kind of a compromise between the two. Uh, it's, it's again, a hesitation between, uh, it, it exempl- I think that fr- footnote is, is Freud's humor because it exemplifies again, the rat man's hesitation, his vacillation, his oscillation between this wish to carry out this deed. And he calls them himself, these criminal acts, like slitting his own throat or killing his brother's, um, fiance or yada, yada, yada. And then the counter writing compulsion to like repent for that and take it back. And this kind of cruelty that he does to himself by in the hesitation. So he can neither be a great man nor criminal, right? He is kind of caught between the two. I do want to note that the father makes an explicit vow to never strike the rat man again in anger. Now, does he make a vow or does, or does the rat man just say he, he doesn't do it again? That's, I that's thought interesting. He, I thought he had you explicitly might be right. said it, but I don't recall. You I, may... I, I, bet, <laughs> I bet you're right. Well, okay. He says he thought this scene, the rat man thought this scene had had a permanent impact both on himself and on his father. Right. His father had never beaten him again. Okay, gotcha. I thought it was explicitly stated that the father, but I could, you know. It seems, my at least to my translation, that 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 it's that it's not the father doesn't necessarily say it at the time. Yeah, I but remember my infer- my own mother making a similar when I was a kid. Oh yeah, my Go mother ahead. verbally said, "You know, I'm I don't want to ever like hit you again." Okay. And there was no was this, like was this, a, was this after a spanking? Not e- not even really. I don't remember exactly what the context was, but got it. I don't recall it being after any kind of particular incident or anything like that but she just came out and said that it was okay quite interesting yeah. the generation before ours and obviously in this you know in the last century yeah. uh spankings were, were, were normal oh i mean i was every day kind was, of i was spanked um okay yeah yeah with belt fly swatter hand multiple yeah. different types Dep- of influence. depending on the severity of the crime of the, yeah of or the who offense. was who was whom was administering it yeah, um, yeah you know i received corporal punishment at my school at my like middle and high school well right yeah some schools multiple probably times still do that i had um, three times i was uh <laughs> whipped by the with a paddle by the uh principal so 
I'll give you some of my own history in a second, but what is interesting that, that as a consequence of this incident, Freud says from then on terrified by the magnitude of his rage by Ratman, he's affected too by this outburst that he has. Oh, may, okay. Maybe that's, I perhaps was conflating the Ratman's. Yes. That it says he had become a coward. He becomes a coward after standing up to his dad, calling label or tape. Was it? You lamp, you towel, you plate, etc. Um, which is great. From then on, terrified by the magnitude of his rage, he had become a coward. His whole life long, moreover, he had a terrible fear of being beaten and would creep away, horrified and outraged, whenever one of his brothers or sisters was being caned. Which is funny that he never gets beaten again. Yeah, I know, right? But his brother and sister, Dude. brothers or sisters, I don't know how many brothers or yeah. sisters he has, but, but he would he would see his siblings being beaten. So obviously the father didn't vow to stop beating the children at all. Just him. Yeah. Right. Which is very fascinating. Right. Um, Very strange. Or, well, he may not have taken a vow at all, but yeah, yeah. It just never happened again. So maybe he became such a coward that really he, Uh, um, right. right. He he didn't do anything to piss off his father. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So he becomes this coward which is an interesting consequence when we would think he would become brave. Yes, exactly. You know, and I'll just say a little bit before we go on with this, you know, when I was a child, I have an older sister. She's four years older than me. And my father would always raise his voice. He would never, uh, we were never beaten by mom or dad, but my father would raise his voice and kind of yell at her, Mm -hmm. us to get, get to do something you know, around the age of three or even before one day he's yelling at me and trying to get me to do what, go to bed or whatever the fuck, you know? And I would just laugh. I just laughed at him. I just started laughing. Um, (laughs) Nice. And, and he said that he had realized that what, and it was funny because I would laugh and my sister would start yelling too, like, just do what he says. And I I would just be laughing. And so dad said that he kind of was struck by this and realized that he had to change his manner of parenting because he wasn't going to beat us. Yeah. That's just, that was just something that he didn't think was a necessary tool. I mean, like, you know, he's, he and mom just, I don't know. I, I think that, um, I think that I know that my dad, his father was a drunk, was abusive, beat his mom and his sister and him. Uh, yeah. So that's something that I think he didn't want to identify with. Right. Speaking of father identifications and shit like that. So me laughing at him forced him to, to realize that that yelling wasn't going to work and he would have to be uh, more. Mm-hmm circumspect about yeah because it wasn't like i was a bad kid or or really rebellious or anything it was just that it's it's like zizek talks about authority and um that you know real authority doesn't have to doesn't have to show itself right doesn't doesn't have to when you when you bring out the phallus you know something's gone wrong it should be it should be implied in the so once you know, once the emperor show, once you see the emperor doesn't have clothes. Yeah. Right? Once, once you're getting yelled at and, you know, honestly, 
with other parents, per, perhaps that that my act would have elicited. Yeah, that would have enraged. Yeah, that could have. Uh, but um, enraged someone for sure. Reminds me too of the Sopranos when they talk about Meadow at a certain age. Tony's like, we can't let her know we're powerless or we're fucked. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There you go. But that's 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 the thing. He had that realization. He was smart enough to realize, like, oh fuck. Okay, well, you know, Plan B. And um, there's other stories I could tell, but this isn't this isn't the, the Adkins uh, happy hour. Um, tell tell me tell me, Mister Adkins. <laughs> yeah. Let yeah, me put on me. my Freud specs again. Tell me about your father. <laughs> yeah, you're not wearing your your, your specs. Oh, there you go. Uh, there we go. Now this. All of this I have been leading up to tell the listener and to talk about what enraged his father. And he didn't know at the time. He finds out later from his mom what he did. And this kind of wraps up Oedipus and gets us to the next point about his time in the service and hearing about the torture device with rats. He's told that what he did was bite someone. Ah, yes, yes. And we're not, that's not sure if he I did bite, I did bite a kid when I, I feel like I bit one of my friends. That's interesting. (laughs) I was super young. And I've definitely, I bit someone as an an adult too, but I won't go into that story. Well, and and Freud wouldn't (laughs) say this, but you know, there is, there is the whole stage where we're helpless as children, where generally we have the mother or her substitute breastfeeding. And at a certain age, our teeth start to come in and we do bite. We do start to bite in the process. It can be painful. And then the, you get into the, the age where you start to wean off, right? But but teething is a, it has the word teeth and teeth in it, right? It's 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 a thing. So biting is, is a very primordial drive in a certain right. sense, right? But biting another person outside of that context and at the age of three, yes, that's kind of like wetting your bed or whatever. That's where the law has to come in and, and institute a, uh, so, so if you, if you think about it and this gets us to the rats, that scene at the age of three, which may have um, coincided or been around the time when he crawls under his governess's dress and starts feeling her genitals, Mm -hmm. that age of three, he's beaten for biting. And that, is a part of the larger complex of the rat fantasy. Right. Yes, yes, yes. Because now we get to what you described where he's later on, I assume he's at least 18. Who knows what the year that he's um, doing military service. Off to maneuvers, yeah. Which is fascinating because that there's a contradiction where ever since his biting episode and being beaten and then having the rage he's described as being cowardly but then he enters the service so despite that cowardice he still follows in his father's footsteps of uh enlisting in the military i assume he's enlisted and not yeah they, okay they would have been told. i mean freud is practicing in vienna which i'm assuming is at this point still part of the i mean the austro hungarian empire is still a thing at this yeah, juncture yeah. i would think yeah, so uh because it's not until, you know, World War II, pre-World War II that Austria, you know, the Nazis absorb Austria. What year? I is guess World War, War, War 1 would be whenever the Austro-Hungarian Empire 
is basically no more, right? Right. So 1909 is when this is published. So it's before World War One. It's hard to say what kind of, if there were conflicts. 1918 was when the Austro-Hungarian Empire collapsed. Okay. Following so, World so, War One. So in any case, he's following in his father's footsteps. Even though he's a coward, he, he enlists in the military service. And he recalls two captains under which he serves. It's kind of good cop, bad cop shit. The and, old cop, bad cop route. And the bad cop is a check. So don't forget that, that there's a kind of racial component or, you know, a little bit of ethnic, perhaps. Uh, yeah. Just an ethnic difference. The good cop, the good captain tells him that one of his friends called B paid for his package that came in. He left his glasses during the maneuvers. He orders a new set. They come in. He's told that B paid, you know, three covered the expense of covered the expense. We learn later that that's not even true, that the young girl at the postal office, at the postal office who fancies him paid for it, but he's told by captain that B paid for it. And then he is told by the check, the bad cop, the bad captain, that A is the one that paid for it and he has to pay him back. Now he already knows that this isn't true, but he hears this command and it kind of like yeah, kind of solidifies, him, yeah. it, it solidifies in his mind. And then, you know, he describes how this captain is, is kind of known for his cruelty and is telling these war stories and shit. And he talks about this torture device that supposedly comes from the quote unquote far East. And you can already have like a whole discussion about Orientalism and these fantasies about what they're doing over in the far right. East some of which would be true, some of which would be based in high, you know, uh, in just imaginary confabulations. So this guy, yeah, he tells the story about this torture device where a pot or a bowl is strapped to the victim's ass and it's got rats in it. And they're forced to bore their way into the anus. If you ever watch Game of Thrones, you know, that's immediately what I thought of where the the tickler, the, the torturer is... Um, you know, is doing something similar, except it's it's, it's a pot attached chest. to the, the chest. chest, and then the fire is. Yeah, they heat up the thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, cool. I had forgotten about that. Maybe you refresh memories. Now, the more gruesome, the more gruesome memory that I have related to rats is from the American Psycho novel. Yeah, you, you mentioned that. Tell 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 the tell the listeners about. Uh, so, about content that. warning: <laughs> this is pretty gruesome and awful, and you know, hor- horrendous. But the Patrick Bateman character. And I forget which woman he does this to. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter really. Basically what he does is he keeps a rat, effectively starves the rat. And then he takes the tube. um, One's assuming this is like a long, like an old school vacuum cleaner that had the long tube. And he sticks it into the vagina of the woman. And he like basically puts the rat on the other end. And so, you know, the, the implication being, I guess, the same thing that the rat bores into her vaginal cavity, et cetera. I just do recall later on the corpse is in the the decaying corpse is in the apartment and the rat is still sort of running around, rumming around in like the rib cage and like the desiccated corpse of this poor this poor victim. I wouldn't be surprised if um, if Ellis 
was aware of uh oh, I'm this sure little was, yeah. of this little incident in in the rat man and this kind of this fantasy of of forced felching right is kind of how i describe it and so one of the things that we learn or that we should think of this is how the case history ends before the theoretical remarks or one of the last things freud talks about is is that rats become associated with the notion of children children yes 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 for the rat man we will kind of just go with this guys i think uh, interestingly too here like to note i uh, i love this bringing up the footnote about the pied piper of hamlin's story yeah which you'll right. recall the tale of the pied piper promised to remove the rats from the town he plays his flute and lures them all to their demise via drowning but then the city elders or whomever they want to stiff the they want to stiff the pied piper so he does effectively the same thing and runs off with all of the town's children there you go yeah see that's that that's the associative link that, that freud makes in listening to the rat man is that little folklore tale gets so the rat then the rats become symbolically associated with children and we should already note, as we said, his punishment for biting, he too is in this complex and associates himself with being a rat. We get the line from Goethe about seeing the rat's bloated corpse and seeing his own image in it. And then lastly, this notion of children, you know, crawling out of the, the womb. Uh, out of the out of the anus. Too. Oh well, uh, yes, uh, you're right. Sorry, out of the anus because in the childhood theories of sexuality, all children are born out of the anus and not out of the vagina. And he says that in dream formations, you you have this turning of the opposite. So you have instead of crawling out of the anus, they're crawling into the anus. But we should not forget too, as we said, that one of his first, his primal scene is crawling under the governess's dress. So already you have associated here these ways in which he identifies he is the rat in, in the pot, crawling, crawling in and out, gnawing and biting. We too, as we mentioned earlier, you know, we mentioned about this debt that he has to pay. And that's another thing that triggers him because it reminds him of these stories he heard from his father about when he was in the service he lost some money gambling at this game called the what's called the gambling rat, the spiel rata. And he lost some money and owed owed money and his friend covered the expenses and he was never able to find his friend to pay him back. So this little misdemeanor, this little mishap, this failure to repay a debt gets kind of crystallizes in his mind as, mm -hmm. as he's identifying with the father in the service where he needs to pay back this debt to again it's this comedy of errors where he's supposed to pay back the girl but he's told to pay back b finds out later it's the girl but he really his compulsion is from the check officer the check captain with this crazy rat story that he has to pay back a <laughs> or know? he'll endure the or he'll endure the punishment right is the implication right right that yeah either that or no i think it's more that he projects out that his father or his girlfriend are going to suffer would undergo the okay if he doesn't make good on the right debt, okay. if he doesn't make good on the debt then his his father or his 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 beloved will 
see that I was confused there because I his I thought his obsession was tied to that to inflicting that punishment on them versus this concern for their my reading was that he was worried about the captain if he didn't pay the captain back he would be the one that underwent the the treatment so to speak <laughs> it's very possible that that would be the initial implication but he but because of his obsessional the series of of the love hate between the woman's and the woman and, and his father and uh, these these need to protect them and all this crap it does eventually turn into this fear that they're going to be felched and he has to he has to prevent that at all costs well felch felching is when you like suck the semen out of the orifice typically no. the anus right no felching is has to do with with live animals going into really? orifices mm-hmm. all right i did not know that Unless I'm confusing my felching is something else. Pretty sure it's sucking the. It's almost like a what you would refer to as like a snowball. Typically, pretty sure that's what felching is. I'm gonna Google it and see what comes up. No, it's what's the word then for? I have no idea what the actual word for. Well, I've repressed the. (laughs) I've repressed the the word. Felching is sucking semen from a human orifice. Typically, it's the ass. I love this too. This little detail on Urban Dictionary says it can be done with a with a drinking straw, <laughs> if the semen is stored in the anus. There is a word for uh, for animal play in orifices, and I'm I'm repressing it now. <laughs> Let's see what the Google machine. No, that's going to get us into furry shit if we look that up. Yeah. Ironically, well, I just know felching from that book, um, the Chuck Palahniuk book, Choke. Yeah, right. No, we're, <laughs> I'm going to get ratioed for this. So, uh, <laughs> no, but there is a there is a doesn't matter. Yeah, yeah. you can either edit this out or leave it in. Because I, <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm okay with uh, with with looking a little. Silly. It's a fun ex- it's a fun little aside. <laughs> so we have this leads him into this comedy of errors. Which, which we brought up earlier about he, he, he's sort of, he's going to go into town and do some errands. And he, he kind of like spends his day hesitating about taking a train and, and, and paying back a, you know, and, and, he, and so he's just, he's just kind of, he, he gets into this crazy obsessional yeah. paralysis exactly. and the trains keep going by and it's getting later and later. And he's like, Oh, well, I could still make it to pay off, blah, blah, blah. And then later we see the map and how, how big of a trip it would be to get all the shit done. And as I mentioned earlier, he wants, he wants a doctor to write him a note so that he can give it to. He, yeah, wants, I was he wants to he get a, to... he wants to get a and B together, go to the post office in front of the girl. He wants to give the money to the girl so she can give it to B. So then he can give it to a, and like the circuit can be completed. This, this, this crazy wild compulsion that he dreams up that he has to do, which he never ends up doing. So again, he's kind of a coward. And, you know, part of this is, is what Freud talks about in terms of a secondary benefit from illness where, you know, as we saw in Antioch chapter one, when Mark says suffering is a form of enjoyment or suffering is a form of self-enjoyment, there's something too right, that Freud right. talks about with, you know, the closer and closer, we'll see this with the Wolfman too. The closer and closer we get to curing the subject, you see 
different and more intense types of resistances come out as though they're clinging to their illness in a kind of, and this goes with the hypochondria that Schreiber has, that like by being ill, there are these secondary benefits, whether it be getting attention or getting certain benefits of the doubt or getting certain excuses from others, you know, like, oh, well, he's going through a rough time, right? And stuff like that. Obviously with more severe illnesses, uh, the secondary benefits would be less and less, right? Because you don't necessarily see cancer patients being trying to necessarily milk uh, this for all it's worth. But you do see this secondarily with Munchausen's by proxy, right? Where the the parent is trying to keep the child in a state of dependence to the point of causing them illness. Yeah. And so there is a kind of yeah, Munchausen's, yeah. but afflicted on the self. Yeah. The whole thing about this comedy of errors or this comedy that, that Freud says he's trying to enrapture everyone in, this is how he gets to see Freud, or this is his, his real excuse to see Freud, is that Freud will write me a doctor's note saying, you know, like, please, please be patient with this fucking crazy guy. <laughs> he really needs you to do this. Um, it reminds me of the Joker movie, right? Where he's got that card in his wallet. That he hands out, yeah. Yeah, that he hands and he ends up losing. And it's is is just uncontrollable laughter. And there's something similar to that where he wants he wants this, if you will, this kind of certificate of authenticity of his malady. Impasse. Yeah, his malady, right. What 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 do you want to hit on next? Just to another little layer to this too is he tells Freud the story about how he goes to visit his father's grave and he sees what he perceives as a rat present at the grave. Yes, this is again, which is like a end. misrecognition to uh, that Freud, I think, footnotes as yes, probably so something he, else, but he, it's a weasel, apparently. Yeah, yeah. He's visiting his father's grave. He sees what he thinks is a rat. It's a weasel, apparently, that he's that I think Freud says are common. In yeah, graveyards. to that area, it, yeah. to that air, to that graveyard, which is a fascinating little footnote. Um, but he thinks that the rat came out of the grave and was eating the father, right? And and so that's another layer to it, right? Yeah, and so and then you have, let's see, we talked about. Oh, I know what it is. So you've got all the different, but one of the verbal bridges. Besides the symbolic bridges of him identifying with the rat crawling in and out, the spiel rata, the gambling, uh, the rat, the gambling rat in the game that his father lost all the money to and couldn't pay back the debt, which he reproduces. He has this basically this compulsion to repeat this inability to repay a debt. Yeah, he sets up this fantastical situation that has no resolution. Right. So the first verbal bridge. So it's it's almost like that circling of the circling the compulsion. Drain. What is it? Yeah, circling uh, the void, orbiting the yeah with the symptom and stuff. So the first verbal bridge is yeah, rat and spielrata, the gambling. The second is rat and rate, because when when he asks Freud how much does it cost you know, Freud speaks, it's so many florins, but he's thinking like, oh, and, and, you know, the rate is so many florins. 
and the rat man hears uh, hears rate and, and thinks rats. So many florins, so many rats. So you have this interesting link between rat and money, money, which we will get to a lot more in the Wolfman and maybe next time when we talk about the theoretical section yeah. of Ratman with the anal character, anal eroticism and money. I mean, one of the... In terms of that story that he tells about the older gentleman that would travel with his the younger ladies and the whole recounting of how the Florins were, he would iron the, am I thinking correctly that he would iron yes. the money okay, and then he great. would have the money be very clean. This is great. Yeah. But then contra to that, whenever he pointed out, okay, well, don't you think your hands are dirty when you okay, we, yeah, molest we, we should, these young girls? Yeah. So we should, we should, we should back up a second. Yeah. This is, this is great. This is one of the times that Freud pisses off the rat man and they break off uh, the session. Whether or not, we're not told whether or not the Ratman ever comes back and that Freud is giving us all these other reconstructions after the fact, but yes, so so one of the obsessive things that the Ratman does is, you know, working for the state, he gets his, the, the notes that he gets, because Freud says at the time there weren't silver coinage, it was, it was paper money. Freud's like, oh, you work for the state when you, when you get like, the the fresh clean bills and it's like no no these we get we get just the we get regular old money but you know i he has this germophobia this misophobia this is a trope and obsessional compulsive stuff we know from like lady Macbeth, you know the out out damned spot she's washing her hands and all this shit but yeah he's germophobic and um you know he's so he's ironing his money and making it super clean and you can imagine that that's not just because he's handling it, but he's uh, handing it to others. But he talks about this notion where he's in these different circles and he plays like the kind of outside uncle figure who's nice. And then he would take these girls out like on picnics. But we get back to procrastination again, kind of like not taking that last train to see a, to give the money to him. He takes these girls out on picnics. Now when it says little girls in my translation, we, we hear that some of them are married. So we don't know how young they range. So he well, may I not think be... he says some, of, I recall from the reading that he said some of them later were married. Yes. Okay. Like they would be married now, but whenever he would effectively molest them. It, from yeah. The, so that's, way, so, my so he would, it's hard to see what age they were uh, they were but Freud does yeah. call this abuse so but anyway he stages this thing he 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 takes them out he they go on a picnic or whatever and he they malinger they he kind of delays and procrastinates and it's like oh it's too late we'll get we'll get um we'll get a hotel we'll get two hotel rooms or is it one hotel room and two beds? I think it's like, we'll get two rooms, whatever. And then he'll kind of like sneak into their rooms and he'll start, he'll start masturbating them. He'll start, I assume, fingering them or playing with their clit, whatever. Much like the rat man with the governess almost. Yes, that's exactly right. Like parallel, that's, right. That's exactly right. Where he's, he has this compulsion to repeat this childhood sexual activity that, that he remembers with um, the second governess. 
the sexually, the, the stupid, sexually needy one uh, who let him do it. Now here, it seems like he's kind of forcing himself on, on them, but he does kind of justify it as like, is like, no, they always liked it. Because Freud's question back to him is like, okay, you iron your money because of germophobia, but you're going to come, you're going to, first of all, concoct this whole situation where you force the issue of staying overnight. So you're obviously setting traps. Again, the whole notion of setting traps, he's fucking, he's, you know, as a child, he's kind of had traps sprung on him and now he's setting traps, uh, rat traps. Um, and he, and he starts to, you know, he, he kind of sneaks into their room and starts to fucking, you know, we're not, we're, we, it's hard to tell whether or not they were asleep at the time. And he like sneaks in almost like a rat, like sneaking in under the, the door or something. Um, and he starts, he starts to, starts to fucking diddle him again. I, I for my reading, I thought that some of them were married at the time. So he's also kind of cucking, uh, some other guys, which is. A, a transgression too, and is violating other men and their quote unquote ownership, their sexual uh, priorities. Kind of like we talked about the series between his father and uh, and and the beloved. But yeah, so he's he's um, and but Freud says, okay, you're kind of abusing these girls, and you're going to use your dirty, your filthy little hands on them. It almost feels like Freud is. Probably his poker face broke a little bit, it feels like, right? Or he was trying to get a reaction because he got one. I mean, he really did. He Freud Freud kind of tells him, dude, what the fuck, man? You're why are you doing that? Isn't that isn't that doesn't that go against he couches it though, like, isn't that hypocritical? You being you using your germ, your germy little hands. And this this pisses him off. You know, and his basic, basically his protest is like, not that my hands are clean, but that they, they always enjoyed it. Yeah. Note that that's, that's right man's answer. He yeah, doesn't, yeah. he doesn't answer the question. He doesn't answer Freud's question. Right, he doesn't right. answer Freud's question. Yeah, I always clean my hands obsessively. He says like, no, they, they liked it. Yeah. Uh, because he knows that the reproach is, dude, you're fucked up. You are, you are molesting these girls. Doesn't matter if they're married or not. Right. Which is which is to say, like, you can't protest that, oh, they weren't virgins. You know, I, I didn't I didn't do any harm. You know, they 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 had already uh, they were sexually promiscuous. You know, you can't use that excuse, but it still doesn't answer Freud's question, which is like, isn't this aren't you spreading germs? Aren't you being a fucking dirty little rat? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like and he gets pissed and he, he leaves. See, I was confused. I thought he was telling a story about someone that he met that recounted that. But what do you mean? What? I thought that the rat man recounted a story about a person that he had met in his travels that told the story about that was the one that had mentioned the money, the Florins. Like that was the whole dynamic between the the oh well, the money's clean, but your hands you don't have any consideration for washing your hands whenever you, you know, assault these women or young girls or whatever the case was, but it was the rat man himself that was. I believe that. so. Um, so, okay. 
see. But I may be, you know. So Ratman tells the story about ironing the money because he's afraid of bacteria, wants to be clean. And Freud is, Freud asks him, okay, so how's your sexual life, right? Is your plumbing working? Basically, like, are you, are you impotent? Or, you know, well, how's your sexual life in general? And uh, he said, oh, everything's fine in that department. I don't go short. I don't know what your translation says, but I thought that was interesting. There's more than a few good families where I play the kindly old uncle. And now and again, I take the opportunity to invite a young girl on an outing to the country. Then I arrange things so that we miss the train. Miss the train, right? Like he missed right. the train. Right, yeah, 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 yeah and have to spend the night in the country. Yes, I, exactly. I do things very handsomely. I always take two rooms. So it wasn't just one room. But when the girl is in bed, I go into her and masturbate her. And Freud says, are you not afraid of doing her some harm when you use your dirty hand to work <laughs> on her? At this, he exploded, however. Harm? What do you mean harm? I didn't do any of them any harm. And they all liked it. Some of them were married already and it didn't do them any harm. Again, he doesn't... He doesn't answer the the reproach about his dirty hands yeah it says that i didn't do any harm hmm. and then freud says he took my query in very bad part and never came back so that may have now well that's interesting because at this first he says that freud opens up the case history saying that he saw the rat man for approximately a year and was able to cure this obsession on neuroses so now i guess that's the thing where it's like Never came back seems absolute, but at the same time, Freud at the end of the case says that it that they cleared up the rat right. yeah, connection exactly. and that he he even make has a footnote where it's like, I wish my I wish I had more ability to link up scientific inquiry with the therapeutic method. But sadly, successful cases don't provide as much material to connect all the dots. So there's something interesting. There's an inverse proportion between the success of the treatment and the scientific empirical connectivity. Value of, of it, yeah. Yeah. Or at least um, like post, so this, you know, posterity-wise. This thing about he took my query in very bad part and never came back. It's that one, that one I don't understand. That one I don't know. Because then how did the treatment become successful? Yeah, exactly. Right. Unless that was know? Freud's ending gambit, you know, or something. <laughs> Yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't necessarily make sense unless somehow Freud wrote him and said, hey, I figured out the rat shit. You know, it's hard <laughs> to tell. Then how would he know that it was succeeded? So I, I'm curious about that. Um, I'll just we'll just leave that in part. But he, he goes on to say, I can only explain the contrast between his anxiety with regards to the paper florins, the money he earns, and his complete lack of concern in abusing the girls in his care. However, as a displacement of the emotion aroused by the reproach. You know, what's interesting too there is he talks about that whole yeah. premature sexual experiences with the, with the governesses. Yep. Repeats itself later on. Yeah. With, cause now he is in the role of governess. Yeah. To a certain extent. To a, yeah. Right. It's not exactly. Except 100%. he is still, and yet he's still, in the active position like he was as a child. Right. But Freud is right to use the word abuse. These are girls that are under his care and protection. He's supposed to be the kindly uncle, at least. So you bring in, even though he's not related to them, 
he brings in this familial dimension to it, which is fucked up and, and quasi-edipal, right? You know, to bring, go back to your initial, your question earlier. And right after this is where we can come back to this question of transference. Because at the very start of the case, Freud says that, you know, he, you sit down the rat man, you say, speak your mind, start anywhere. And he gives the story about being a student and having an older male friend who tells him he's smart, he's intelligent, he's basically a genius, and then starts to tutor him. And at this point, the whole relationship changes and the older boy starts to say he's stupid. He'll never understand anything. And he's, he's a fucking idiot, uh, which is an emotional scar for him. And he realizes after the fact that this boy only befriended him to, to try to get closer to his sister. And this, and then Freud says, and then he starts to just talk about the governesses. So we don't hear much more about that, but I think that that's a very important point that he starts there and not with the primal scene. He starts with this homosocial quasi sexual relationship where he's used, he's being, he's being used. Someone is using him to get closer to his sister. This ties into how he feels about Freud. He looks at Freud and thinks, and basically says to Freud, why do you put up with all my fucking bullshit? Why do you, why are you so patient and understanding and you, you let me go on and on. And he has this fantasy that Freud wants him to marry one of his daughters and that Freud is kind of like grooming him to marry his daughter so that he can become Freud's son-in-law. <laughs> now this is total fantasy on his part. And in fact, yeah. Freud says he came to me one day in a session and was like, Hey, I saw this girl out uh, on the door. On the, right. Right. The yeah. Steps he leading up to Freud's your office. daughter. <laughs> I, is that, was that your daughter? She's kind of, you know, whatever. So he has this transferential moment with Freud where he imagines, but instead of him saying, oh, I, I would love to marry your daughter and be your son-in-law, he projects it onto Freud. It's Freud, it's, it's his fantasy that it's Freud's fantasy about <laughs> him. So it's kind of Lacan desires, desire the other. Right, right, right. He is thinking, he is ideating that Freud has this fantasy where it's like, oh, the rat man, Paul, he's such a, such a good boy. He's got such good prospects, comes from a good family. You know, we really should get him a girl for him to settle down. Right. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of transferential uh, relationship. And apparently at the same time, he gives a dream after this, he has a dream where he sees the girl on the steps to Freud's office. He sees her again, but in her eyes, he sees my translation says splodges. He sees just like blurry blobs. And Freud says the language of dreams, his thought is not marrying my daughter for her lovely eyes, but for her money. Right. So this question of money and class and blah, 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 which dominates his thinking about who to marry. Right. His father saying, don't marry that that woman you love, that'll ruin your, that'll compromise you, that'll ruin your life. We also have to realize that like Schraber, the rat man has, as we said, he has a lot in common. 
And, you know, you mentioned the Hamlin tale about the Pied Piper and the rats and children being uh, linked associatively. We learn at the very end of this uh, case history that the woman he's in love with for over for 10 years and, you know, he, he plans to marry her, but he's not. He keeps putting it off, the procrastination, kind of like missing the train. He lets out that she has had her ovaries removed for one consume health reasons, right? Maybe cancer or whatever afflictions. So she can't have children. And I think that this too is where Freud starts to say, okay, now it makes sense. She's kind of idealized in his head, but this is again, part of the reason for not marrying her, right? That they would not have children and he's fond of children. Let's put emphasis on Freud saying that since we just yeah, talked about the, right. the girls he's taken advantage of, but he's, he's fond of children, wants to have children. We know he knows that she can't. So that's another reason behind not fulfilling the studies and fulfilling this wish that's probably also compulsive to marry her. So she's kind of in this idealized state, but she's also, she's immaculate, but she can't conceive, right? Uh, lest it be through the childhood theory of sexuality, through the anus, right? Which gets us back on track with, with the rats. And in fact, the whole notion of tracks, associative tracks and trains you know, <laughs> is already another thing. Yeah. And, you know, with little Hans, one, you know, the, another case history, the train is supposed to be, you know, the, the father's penis or whatever, right? Uh, so there's that whole thing about trains and, and penises. And we see at the end, Freud is kind of going very quickly and talking about the rat being the penis because it's this, because one of the obsessive compulsive fears too, reason why he probably didn't have sex until he's 26 is that he's worried about catching syphilis. Right. And we know that rats are vectors, the signs of plague yeah. and, and, and infestation. So the, the penis becomes the rat, you know, like uh, classic Freud, but it makes, it, it does make sense. It's, and he's also, he, he has a sphere of prostitutes, right. And that's probably again, the sphere of syphilis is germophobia that he has. But as we know from Leotard, right, that his his woman, this woman that he loves is kind of like a, an idealized prostitute because she she is constantly brought up to him in terms of marriage based on money and money situations. Right. And what circulates hands between prostitutes is money, the cleanliness of the money circulate, you know, circulating and changing hands. You know, you got to you got to uh, steam and iron them and get out the the dirtiness that's that's involved in sexual circulation, right? All of these things are could be thought yeah, of very yeah, clearly in sure. terms of libidinal economy. And she's also an idealized prostitute because she's not able to conceive. And that is precisely not the, so if he marries her and he can have a sexual outlet, but not a, a reproductive outlet, you know, just like, the Lydians prostituting their daughters, yeah. <laughs> you know, all that stuff kind of ties back in. Oh, and the word is obviously not felching, as you said, it's, uh, it's gerbling. So there you go. Fucking Richard Gere. So I had my own displacement, and like, <laughs> you know, kind of like him seeing, thinking he sees a rat, but it's a weasel. Um, I 
was thinking of, I was substituting one <laughs> sexual act, perverse sexual act for another, but yes, Gerbling and, and Richard, uh, Richard Gear. So is, is, is that, is that his name? Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the apocryphal um, tale, yes. right? Yes. The urban legend, rather. The apocryphal ur- urban legend of, of, of Richard Gere. And the, do you remember the South Park episode with Lemmy that's, Winks? Lem- that's Lem- that's, Lem- that's, Winks that's, that's probably why I was, you know, there's a whole, because I kept thinking. Ah, like, yes, that is true. I forgot all about the Lemmy um, Winks. The fucking. Going up the ass of the. Yeah. Gerbling. Mr. Yeah, that, that's uh, Mr. the whole Schlaith. adventure. That's the whole. That's the whole epic sexual adventure. Is because uh, it's a multi-part episode. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. So that's yes, perfect. gerbling. So send your hate mail to at unconscious. <laughs> uh, no. Um. What What else do we want to talk about? I mean, like honestly, we're we're going to cover more of this next time we. I mean, this might be a good stopping point, honestly. Yeah, I mean, because we, we, we covered we, a lot we, of good stuff. Yeah, we're about two hours, roughly, maybe right at two hours, and it's been a productive conversation, I think, in in getting at the a lot of the periphery, at the very least, of the case. Right, I agree. I think so too. I really think it was interesting the way we did go through it because we really hit upon some fucked up shit in yeah. this case. I mean, there's it's not. When you said like listener beware, I'm gonna tell you about America's like <laughs> I was like, dude, I mean like it's already fucked up, right? You know, like yeah. you don't have to, you know, viewer discretion advised, like, bro, you know, it's but yeah, I mean I, I think that we 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 covered a, a good deal and it'd yeah. be great to uh Yeah, we just picked up right on it. I didn't want to interrupt the energy that we were on because we kind of immediately got into a whole rhythm with the discussion and it was flowing, so I didn't want to like halt us and disrupt that flow and i think that in the next recording if you want to we can try to hit some of the highlights right make some bullet points and just run through it yeah and then that way we don't have to try to you know if if people just jump in on episode two they can be apprised of the situation and follow along as we as we go through the theoretical remarks that freud comes up with um, so they can they can kind of get the you know on the last episode of Ratman, <laughs> you know. Um, but as you said so eloquently, um, next week same rat time, same rat channel. You know we'll we'll pick we'll pick up where we left off. Absolutely, this will be the Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry and Taylor Atkins signing off for the week.
nothing left but recycled, whitewashed, lobotomized people as in uh, block work or range. 